The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I should confess up front, I feel a little mentally thrown off because I can't remember ever needing to account for not tripping over a hippopotamus during during a sermon before. But um, that reminds me to tell you that, don't forget, a week from today is Vacation Bible School. And we do have a missionary coming this year who is is a beekeeper to help support for his overseas missionary work. And he'll be here a week from today presenting when we're all together on Sunday morning. And the lunch we have will be in part to help raise financial support for him to get to the field. Just want to put that on your radar. So we are in First Timothy 3. Our brother read the text for us. I want to give a couple of reminders for us as we begin the passage. Don't ever forget the reason we're going through any book of the Bible is because all Scripture is God-breathed. So we're in First Timothy because all Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it is profitable so that the person of God, the man of God, can be thoroughly equipped to every good work. And so this passage is simply the next passage in First Timothy 3. This passage is about deacons, and it talks about who they are. But I want to make sure you know truly up front that I really believe God has blessed us with exceptionally good deacons. So this was not a passage pulled out to, to make a point. I, I hope I would never do something that unethical. We're just simply working through the book of First Timothy, which tells us in verse 14 and 15 that this book in particular serves to help us know how we ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So all scripture is breathed out by God, but each book in scripture makes a significant contribution. First Timothy's significant contribution is to let every church know how to church, which is how we've subtitled the series through First Timothy. So this is how God wants his church to church. And here, in particular, we learn about the office of deacon. Now, if you were here last Sunday, in verses 1 through 7, we learned about the office that the Bible most normally calls elder. We also refer to it as pastor or overseer. This is the next office. It's distinct from that office. There's much in terms of common overlap, in terms of the qualities, but this is a distinct office. It's the office of deacon. Now, there are places in the Bible that tell us what a deacon should do. In January, we had the joy of acknowledging new deacons, and we worked through Acts 6, which tells us what deacons should do. But today's passage is really focused on who deacons should be. These are passages about who these people are, not really focused on what they do, but focusing on the character of those who would fill these offices. So verse 14 and 15, I already alluded to, tell us why this passage is here. It's here so that we would treat God's church the way God wants it treated. But that's always a challenge for us. Jerome was a church father, and he wrote in 394 A.D., so a very, very long time ago, he was concerned that churches, almost 2,000 years ago, were putting more emphasis on their building than on the character of their leaders. And so he wrote this, Many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, and their altars studded with jewels, yet to the choice of Christ's leaders no heed is paid. A similar concern is written by Alexander Strzok. He writes, it's sad to say, but the same careless attitude toward the biblical qualifications for elders and deacons exist in churches today. 
Scripture makes the uncontested point that God's paramount concern is not buildings or programs, but with the moral and spiritual character of those who lead his people. The church offices of elder and deacon are to be filled only by those who qualify according to the standards God has revealed in his word. So these passages can be ones that people find a little boring because they seem procedural, but don't forget God has revealed them because they massively impact our own salvation, our own walk with the Lord, and our own practical journey with Christ. So let me give you a couple things up front before you're tempted to check out. A couple things up front into how a passage like this is so relevant for everyone here Today, First, this passage is relevant because through this passage, the Holy Spirit could convince you that you need to step forward and serve potentially in this office or role. That would be a great thing if the Spirit worked that way. Another reason passages like this are here is to help every member of Christ's church understand a way that we chiefly participate, and that is we identify our leaders. So in Acts 2, we read that those who believed were baptized, and then they were added to the church, and they kept track of who was in the church. And anyone who's a member of the church helps helps recognize who their leaders will be. So it's really important you know the character that God wants for them. Another reason this passage is so important for us is so that we can recognize some people who we currently perhaps have serving as deacon who really are called by God to serve as elder. So it's helpful to know what's different between the offices, what overlaps and what's distinct about them. Another reason is so that we can appreciate the way that we're blessed by our deacons. Yeah, I think it was a month or so ago, I was visiting one of our members who's homebound. And when I was at their house, I noticed a wooden ramp that was on the side of the house. And they explained to me in my time there that one of our deacons had shown up without expectation, unsolicited, and built them a wooden ramp to help them get in and out of the house. I love learning stuff like that. Because that's the heart of a deacon. Deacon spends his time doing that kind of service behind the scenes. And this passage gives us the reason why we should so appreciate those with such character. So today's title is The Church's Deacons, which are those who assist the elders, which I think is why these offices are put side by side here in chapter 3. And we're going to notice, if you have your bulletin, five uh, categories in which today's teaching falls. So five categories that mark a deacon. Number one, deacons manifest Christian character. Now, they manifest Christian character. We're all supposed to be like Jesus. Deacons manifest particular Christian character. This is obviously not an exhaustive list of everything Jesus is like, but they are representative qualities that are very important. So look in verse 8. Deacons Likewise, notice the word likewise, that means that there's some overlap with the elders in terms of their qualities and characteristics. But notice the next two words, deacons, likewise, don't miss these, must be, must be. So God actually does not want us to select people to fill a position or to meet a quota or because we've known them for years, but God actually does have stringent qualities that he wants manifest. And this is important, just to speak candidly. Our bylaws at Emmanuel currently require that we have 12 deacons at all times. Now, obviously, God is sovereign over the seasons of a church's life. So there could be a season where we don't have 12 people who meet the qualities here. We never want to get to a point as a church where we say, are you alive? 
Okay, that's good enough. We'll move forward from there. We need to have the actual qualities that the scripture has. So we never want to reach a man-made quota if we don't actually satisfy God's revealed quota. Does that make sense? So here in 1 Timothy 3, God begins with must be in verse 8, because this is actually what he really demands of those who would serve in this office. Not perfection, but a genuine characteristic of these qualities. So here's the first one. A deacon must be dignified. The word means worthy of esteem or respect. So someone worthy of esteem or respect by their character. Now, similarly to how the word or the office of elder was begun with the umbrella term above reproach, and then above reproach was explained by the words that follow. Similarly here in verse 8, worthy of respect is now going to be explained by three terms that follow. One who is worthy of respect is not described by the three following descriptions. They're not double-tongued, they're not addicted to much wine, and they're not greedy for dishonest gain. So let's take those now one at a term. Time. The first, verse 8, as we continue, they must be dignified, and they're dignified in this way. First, they're not double-tongued. It's really a funny word in Greek, delagos, so two tongues. Um, think, I mean, praise God, there are Christian politicians, but when we think of the word politician, often negative connotations come to mind, and, and this is kind of what we think. We think of someone who's double-tongued, someone who's slippery. The word means someone who says, a certain set of things with one audience, but then says a different set of things with another audience. Let me try to illustrate why in the office of deacon this could be so incredibly dangerous. Because those who serve in the office of deacon are shock absorbers between the pastor elders and the congregation. Think how easy it would be for a deacon after a service one day to hear a disgruntled member and that member says some things about, I can't believe our pastors or our elders are leading us this way. And the deacon says, yeah, you know, they really are morons. I can't believe what they're doing. And then they continue that conversation. But then the deacon comes over to the pastors, to the elders, and says, this woman, she's really a pain in my side, but this is what she wanted me to relay. So if he's playing both sides against one another, that's what it means to be double-tongued. It's exceedingly destructive for a church if you pretend to be one thing around one group of people and another around another in fact, some homes, maybe that's all you've known. Maybe you grew up seeing your parents actually work that way, and so that seemed very normative to you. But Jesus in Matthew 5 tells us as Christians in verse 37, all you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything else comes from the evil one. So as Christians, our yes should be yes, our no should be no. It should be clear where we are, regardless of who we're speaking to. I think C.S. Lewis hit on this well in his book, The Last Battle, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. And in that particular book, he extols the virtue of having a stronger inside than outside. His point is, it's a good thing if your inner life is more important to you than your outward persona or reputation. If your inner life matters more, then you're less likely to have a chameleon-like quality with the different people groups within which you may be. So deacons, you remain worthy of respect if you are not double-tongued. Next, we see deacons are worthy of respect if they are not addicted, or the text says, not given to much wine. 
So not giving them much wine obviously would mean that deacons should not be drunk. God forbids drunkenness explicitly of elders and of deacons and, of course, of all Christians for the good of Christ's testimony, the love of neighbor, and for our own good. We should not be under the enslaving, addictive power of anything. Let me give you two scriptures. If maybe this is a topic sensitive to you or your family, these may be good references to write down. Proverbs 20, verse 1, I still have memorized in the old King James translation. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 through 30, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining? Who has wounds they cannot explain? Who has redness of eyes? Verse 30 gives the answer. Those who tarry long over wine, those who try mixed wine. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible's telling us two qualities about, about alcohol, and there are many other substances that are similar, but explicitly about alcohol. Alcohol is both dangerous and deceptive. Meaning that when we go to defend alcohol, we should not forget that it has a deceptive, enticing quality about it. We may be defending it because we've been deceived by it, is the idea. So Alexander Strauch writes, Of particular concern to church leaders should be a secret alcoholic, perhaps called a closet alcoholic or a high-functioning alcoholic. Do not expect to see a deacon who's an alcoholic lying drunk in the street. It's more likely that he will have a double life. And he may aggressively attack anyone who exposes his problem, including his spouse and children. Carefronting a functional alcoholic is difficult and unpleasant because he is prepared to fight and lie to protect his addiction. So a deacon would not be worthy of respect if he is indeed an alcoholic. And surely may God help us as Christians to be controlled instead by the Holy Spirit. Further, the text says he's not worthy of respect if the third quality, if he is greedy for dishonest gain. So that's four words in English, but it's only one in Greek. It's such a strong term. It it means to have a shameful bent or inclination towards materialism or towards money. It means to be easily uh, dishonest when money gets involved. It means to easily be manipulative when finances is part of the conversation. No Christian should be controlled or captured by finances. First Timothy 6 will tell us that the love of money is the root of all different types of evil. Greed can expect, we can through greed expect to receive things that we can actually only receive from God, such as joy or peace or security. But let me just talk about why it's so important that elders and deacons are not greedy people or people who particularly are under the love and influence of money. If you're a pastor, if you're an elder, and you're ensnared by the love of money, there are many ways that could cause you to be a poor pastor. But one of them will be, frankly, you will not preach difficult texts because you will fear financial reprisal. There are multiple ways that that would cause you to be a poor pastor. But as a deacon as well, it could be very poor. Because deacons normally are the ones who actually do the dispersing or the day-to-day accounting of the money. Think of it this way. Jesus had the 12 apostles. Who set the agenda 
for how they would disperse their income? Who cast the vision for how they would care for the poor? Obviously, Jesus did. But who took care of the day-to-day treasury? Judas, and obviously we will not accept any applicants for treasure who are named, who are named such. But the, the pattern there of, of that the, the pastors, the elders cast a vision, but they don't actually have the day-to-day care of the treasury. The day-to-day care of the treasury in scripture is the deacons. But let me talk about how it would be very dangerous if deacons are people who are ensnared by financial greed. It's not only the obvious things like extorting or embezzling. Those, of course, are sinful and wrong, but it's actually much more subtle things like misdirecting or misprioritizing funds to appease a specific member or to have a power struggle with other leaders or to advance your own private agenda. Those are actually all examples of love of money. Deacons through greed or financial impropriety could cause tremendous harm to the church, as could elders, if we do not first love God and second love our neighbor. Hebrews 13 verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because the Lord has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I think a verse that should be on the headboard of anyone who helps in the finances of certainly our church or any is 2 Corinthians 8. Verse 21, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. It's vitally important that our dealings with finances have appropriate transparency and that they can be examined and found to be right. So this is all under point number one on your bulletin. Number one, deacons manifest Christian character. But now number two. Deacons sincerely hold to the faith. Look with me in verse 9 for number 2. Deacons sincerely hold to the faith. Verse 9. They, that is deacons, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If you're looking at the word mystery in verse 9 and you're like, what is the word mystery talking about? If you look down in verse 16, he says the mystery of godliness and then gives a poem about the work of Christ. So mystery means the full revelation of what Jesus has done. So deacons need to hold firmly to the full revelation of what Jesus has done. If you're a visual kind of person, picture two images for verse 9. The first is a hand gripping something firmly, gripping the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The second is a heart that's pure, a clear conscience. So holding the faith firmly, but holding it with a clear conscience, not duplicitously or disingenuously. So verse 9, a deacon is someone who must truly hold to the faith of Jesus. That doesn't mean he needs to be a scholar. Remember, elders need to be required to teach. Deacons do not be required to teach. But they must sincerely know and understand the gospel and love Jesus Christ. We all understand the difference between doing something in just the motions versus doing something because it's your heart desire. You can have children at home who are externally compliant for years, but eventually it becomes clear they have rejected their parents and their teaching. You can have a soldier in boot camp who says, hoorah, every time the drill instructor says, are you enjoying this? But inwardly is fantasizing about slapping his drill instructor silly. There can be a disconnect between what you hold to, but what you sincerely live with clear conscience believe. Deacons must not be people in which there is such 
a divergence. Holding with a clear conscience means sincerity, but it also means exactly what you might think clear conscience means. It's not a guilty conscience. Now, Pinocchio (laughs) told us to always let our conscience be our guide, and there's some truth in that only if our conscience is informed by Scripture. Jonathan Edwards illustrated this way, your conscience is like a sundial. And the thing that makes the sundial correct is only the light of the sun. No candle can put it in the right spot. So if we let anything other than the scripture guide our conscience, then the blind's leading the blind. But if the light of Christ through his word informs our conscience and we're tender to it, then we have a clear conscience. Notice the opposite of a clear conscience would be a guilty or hard conscience. Did you know that every time you knowingly sin against Scripture, it calluses your conscience? So what the first time you were a little uneasy doing, the second time becomes easier to do. The third time, it's so normal that by the fourth time, you're actually saying it's right. That's how it works to rewire the conscience. This is why Isaiah 55, the Lord says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If I could give you a very practical thing that has been very helpful in my own life. Did you notice in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread after telling us to daily confess our sins. Let me strongly encourage you to not go to bed without clearing your conscience. God, forgive me for what I've done today that I'm aware of that was not in light of your word. Let me strongly encourage you to not miss communion the first Sunday of every month so that you can again, Lord, remind me how Christ has paid for all my sin, but do not let me become comfortable with it. So a deacon leads with a clear conscience. So number one, manifest Christian character. Number two, sincerely holds to the faith. And now on your bulletin, number three, a deacon is congregationally tested. And look in verse 10. Then let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let's make sure we understand some of these words. So first the word test is the Greek word for scrutinize. It's a pretty strong term. But lest you get overly discouraged, of course, blameless does not mean sinless. No man is without fault. No man is without sin. But it means in light of the words that were just given. So they're tested in light of the verses that surround verse 10. No deacon is perfect. No Christian is perfect. But do they, can they be characterized by the surrounding terms? Are they drunk? Are they greedy? Are they double-tongued? If, if not, praise God and so on with all the other surrounding terms. The next question would be, okay, well, who tests them then? Who, who tests them? And throughout the Bible, what we, we learn, especially in the book of Acts, is the purview in which testing happens is the one anothering of your church, your congregation, your brothers and sisters. You're hopefully faithfully attending. You're spending time with brothers and sisters so they see your life. And those who help shepherd and ultimately appoint deacons, we read clearly in Acts 6, are the elders. So the congregation gets to know one another. The elders help guide such an appointment of deacons. The exact particulars God gives us freedom on, of course, but those are the purview in which the testing happens. All right, did you notice the deacons have to be tested? Think about what that means. First of all, it means not everyone is a deacon. 
there was a church I knew of um, that my friend went to, and he showed up. This is literally his first Sunday there. He shows up there on Sunday, and he was in the parking lot, and he couldn't find his car. And they said, why don't you help other people park? And he said, okay. And they said, congratulations, you're now a deacon of the church. <laughs> in their church, a deacon literally just meant anything that anybody does to serve. But then verse 10 makes no sense at all. Obviously, these are select people. Not everybody's a deacon. Some people are deacons who have been tested and who have demonstrated the character here. Also, it means that deaconing is significant ministry. It's important. It's something that requires testing. It's not insignificant. It matters, as we'll see, especially in verse 13. But furthermore, and I think with more time, hopefully we could show this from the whole Bible, but even from just this passage, since elders are presented first and deacons second, I think part of the reason we see the testing, and it'll come back in chapter 5, is to show that there's a sense in which these offices work together, and that's why the testing matters, so that there's going to be harmony among them, so that there's character that will make unity possible. In order for there to be peaceableness, there needs to be a certain level of purity, right? That's why the testing's there. I want to say to us as a church, this testing process is so good for all of us. It is like a rising tide that raises all boats. It makes every Christian more aware of, oh yes, it does matter how I live. It makes every Christian more aware of, oh, it does matter who knows me and who I let get to know me. It makes every Christian more aware of, oh yes, we don't actually want to operate here the way things happen in D.C. We want to be different from that. We don't want to leverage things through political manipulation. We want to see the Spirit of Christ in the way we even govern. So it's really important that we follow these things. The process of it will be for our spiritual good. Now we're at number four. So first, deacons manifest Christian character. Second, they sincerely hold to the faith. Third, they're congregationally tested. But fourth, they lead their family well. I think that's where verse 11 and 12 fall. But let's first look at verse 11, and I'll take a few minutes on it. So if you're someone who's like, uh, just stick to the bottom line, we're going to get there. We have to have a little bit of a technical road to try to make sure we interact with this passage, which is one that's often questioned today. So verse 11 begins in the ESV. Their wives likewise must be. Now the, the question is, Since God breathed every word of Scripture, and he has done so through human authors, what does God want us to understand through Paul in verse 11? Who is he addressing? Is he addressing women? Is he addressing wives? Is he addressing women deacons? That's the open question. First, we always need to make sure we're clear. No one has a higher view of women than God does. He made males and females in his image. Also, we want to be clear that serving in the church in an official title is not more valuable than serving in the church unofficially. In fact, frankly, when you're unofficial, you have more freedoms than when you're in a restricted official office. Often that limits your ministerial possibilities. Further, we'd want to understand that in the Bible, offices are not about ability. They're about accountability. So they're not about capacity and aptitude. They're about burden of accountability from God. All right, given that background, I have the Greek right in front of me here. The Greek is gunikos hosetos. So if I was just to take it woodenly, literally, the word gunitos could mean women or wives, because in Greek it can mean either. You only know by context. And then the other word, uh, hosotes, 
is the word likewise. Um, so did you catch the pronoun there is not technically in the Greek. So it, that's added interpretively. So it could just simply mean women likewise. So I'm going to tell you five ways people have understood this. And then I'm going to tell you the only two that are taken seriously grammatically. So here's the five. Some people think maybe Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just talking about every single woman. That's exceedingly unlikely, but it's it's a possibility. The second is that he's talking about women deacons. That is one of the likely ones, so I'll return to it. The third is that he's talking about deaconesses. If you've ever thought that female deacons and deaconesses are the same thing, they are not the same thing. Deaconesses in church history were thought of as a third order, sort of a third group of people. Also an extremely minority view and, and not likely at all grammatically. The fourth is that it's, it's some women who happen to assist deacons, extremely unlikely. And the fifth is that it is, as it's translated here, deacons' wives. I gave you the five just so I could cover every base, but there's only two that are actually likely. Here's what the two are. The two are that these are female deacons or that they are deacons' wives. I'm going to give you the best argument for both and then I'll kind of land the plane, okay? So the best argument for female deacons, if these are female deacons, the best argument for that would be that why would Paul talk about the wives of deacons and not the wives of elders? It seems strange. And so that would be an argument for him talking about female deacons. The other argument for him talking about female deacons would be that the pronoun there is not in the text And the final would be, even though it's just one verse, in Romans 16, verse 1, Phoebe is called a servant, but it's the same Greek word for deacon, so it's possible that these are female deacons. Okay? Those are the strongest arguments for female deacons. Now the strongest arguments for it being the deacon's wives. The first is that that makes the best sense of the flow of the context. So we've been talking about deacons the whole time. In verse 12, if you look ahead, he's going to say a deacon needs to be a husband of one wife and he needs to manage his children and households. So he's talking about their home life and their family. So it would certainly seem that verse 11 is still talking about their home life. A further very strong argument for it being deacons' wives is if someone says, well, Josh, the pronoun there, T-H-E-I-R, is not in the text, But it's also not in the text for children in verse 12, but no one questions who the children belong to because Greek doesn't always need to use pronouns the way English does. So that argument ends up being not as strong as some might have initially thought it to be. Further, in church history, if we were to go to church history or Bible translations, overwhelmingly for 2,000 years, they've understood these to be deacons' wives. All right, so if you're asking me, Josh, Where should we land the plane? And here's honestly where I would land it. I I really actually think that verse 11 is really not a hill to die on. I really don't think it is. I don't think the difference is significant as long as we don't misunderstand or disobey the end of chapter 2, which we discussed last month. Remember, the end of chapter 2 tells us that God has not called women to teach over males in the congregation or to exercise authority over males in the congregation. So if a church does have female deacons, it must be very, very clear that those deacons operate the way the New Testament wants them to operate, which, again, just to be frank, is not the way deacons have operated in Baptist churches for the last 40 years on the whole. Many Baptist churches, deacons operate like a house of representatives or they operate like a corporate board. But the way I like to say it at home is um, 
I don't use the word board for elders. I don't use the word board for deacons. There's only two boards I've seen in the Bible, and they make the cross. I don't see any other ones. So there, there is no way that the office of deacon is like a governing body. If we're clear on that, then whether or not males or females are, are in there is not a hill to die on. One other thing I think is helpful to remember, though, in our cultural moment, we should remember we all live in a given time. And in our cultural moment, males and females are often pitted against one another. But this is not the way we ought to approach these kinds of conversations. In fact, in the Bible, we're told that the first man and the first women, those two became one flesh. And what they did was thought of as a team effort. And when you think about it that way, verse 11 makes much more sense. Because if husband and wives are a team, then it would make sense that they would be addressed collectively. So in either case, now let's look at verse 11 and see how these women are addressed as well. So their wives likewise must be, and then we have the same word here, dignified. It's the Greek word semnos. Just like the deacons are to be dignified, so also these women are to be dignified. As wives, Proverbs 12 verse 4 would make sense. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 19:14. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is a gift from the Lord. Proverbs 31, 10 through 12. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm all the days of her life. So if this indeed is talking about the team of husband and wife, this is how they as a team showed the dignity of Christian virtue. And verse 11 continues, just like verse 8 did, dignity is then described by three qualifications. Same in verse 11, dignity is described by three qualifications. They are not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So it's vital that these women are not women prone to slander, destroying other people's reputation inappropriately and without cause. It's also vital that they're temperate, not given to extremes in behavior, and vital that they are faithful, worthy of trust, especially because surely they may have access to information that is of a sensitive nature. Well, now verse 12 continues what I think is probably the focus on the deacon's family life. Verse 12 Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. The same description was given of elders. It means one woman, man. The idea is the deacon's devotion, whether single or married, to his purity, and if married, surely to his wife. I love the story of Winston Churchill. There was apparently a dinner in England where all the dignitaries came. And for the fun of it, they asked a question. The question was, if you were not who you are, who would you like to be? And they went all the way around the room. And at that moment, people really want to hear what Winston was going to say. And they finally got around to Winston. And Winston stood up and he was holding his wife Clementine's hand. And he said, if I was not Winston Churchill, I would want to be Mrs. Churchill's second husband. Well, (laughs) he scored some points that night. I think that was very prudent. It's the same concept here, though. The one-woman man, he's devoted to that woman, no one else. There's no question about that. Managing their children and their household well. There's no question about the initiative he takes at home. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children 
to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice, fathers are to do this. Colossians 3.21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers are to do this. My favorite, 1 Thessalonians 2.11-12, Paul says, we entreated you like a father should his children. Then he gives three things that a dad does. We exhorted each one of you, dads exhort. We encouraged each one of you, dads encourage. And we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is what dads do. This is what deacons do. So, number one, they manifest Christian character. Two, they hold to the faith sincerely. Three, they're congregationally tested. Fourth, they lead their family well. But now I love verse 13, number five. Deacons will be blessed by God for their service. Verse 13. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think good standing is looking at the horizontal plane, how their brothers and sisters come to respect them over the years. And great confidence is dealing with the vertical plane, how they have deeper assurance of their relationship with God and their knowledge of what Christ is like and the goodness of the gospel in their own life. William Mounts put it so well. He said, it's not so much that by being a good deacon, you'll get rewards after life. Rather, it's the actual doing of the service in which one daily acquires a better standing before the people in their life and the confidence in their personal faith. He concludes, these rewards are not achieved at some point in time. They're achieved through the process of service. Now, in my family tree, if you went all the way back, there were no Christians that we know of. Uh, in my mom's side or my dad's side, all the way back as far as we can trace. But in God's grace, when uh, two ladies were going door to door in Detroit and they knocked at the door of my dad's uh, bunch of guys that were all getting drunk that evening, they shared the gospel with him. Gloriously, my dad was saved. His life radically changed. And over the years, and this took decades, several other family members came to know the Lord. And I was thinking about my own upbringing, and I remember after my dad became a believer, he became a deacon in the church, and he did something that I've tried to do as a father anytime I can. When he was serving, he brought me along. And so as he's doing things for people's homes, as he's fixing things around the church, as he's staying late for lockup, as he's trying to help counsel someone at the corner, or if he's sharing the gospel at 7-Eleven while we're waiting for a Slurpee, I'm there. And what I remember learning through that process is, man, I, I want to love the Lord the way he does. I respect him. And I, I saw church is a good thing. Now, this is exactly what verse 13 is promising. I was tracing out the family tree. After dad got saved first, many years later, my grandpa got saved, and he became a deacon until he passed away. Eventually, my uncle got saved, my Uncle Joe, and he had four boys, uh, Joey, Timmy, David, and Mark, and they grew up 11 houses away from me. And now two of those four are deacons in their churches. All four of them are serving in their church. Today, my brother pastors Emmanuel Baptist Church of Flint, Michigan. I pastor Emmanuel of a much better city, much better city all the way around. My sister is with the Lord now, but when she was on earth, she served in camps and Christian schools and spent her life faithfully. This is what verse 13 is saying. You, you get to see year by year faithfulness. And I'll tell you honestly, what I didn't see, I never, ever, ever remember my dad complaining about 
the pastors or complaining about the church or complaining about the process or any of those. None of that was handed down. And so the only thing that was handed down is Christ is beautiful. Church is great. And so verse 13 is telling us this incredible thing that can happen when you serve that way. Now, let's make sure we understand that the Greek word diakonos is the word serve. So where do we learn service? So Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, whoever wants to be great among you must be your diakonos, your deacon, your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed or served, but to deacon or serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That was the same night that he washed the disciples' feet. Subsequently, he went to the cross. Look now in verse 16. Here's the mystery of the faith that the deacon holds to. Here's the great confidence that they find in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess. This is our confession. Is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. That's his incarnation and his resurrection. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Christ who existed eternally, who owed us nothing but wrath and judgment, gave up all the glories of heaven, was incarnated in the loneliness of human flesh, born in a manger, willingly walked the hill to Calvary, died for sinners who hated him, vindicated by the Spirit when risen from the dead, witnessed by angels, proclaimed in the nations, believed, and don't miss how it ends, but taken up into glory. God has highly exalted him and given him a name among every name. And notice again in verse 13, how do we receive the saving service that Jesus alone has provided? It's staggering, but the answer is not by works of righteousness, which we could do, but simply through faith. This morning, I do want to encourage you, if you've never had the surety that your sins are forgiven and that glory is your future, would you receive that today simply through faith? It's amazing. God offers to you freely what costs Jesus everything. And there's nothing you can contribute or add or earn, but Jesus has paid it all. This morning, if you are a Christian, remember our confession. God was revealed in service, witnessed in death, and received after suffering. Should that not characterize us all? And may it characterize well those who continue to serve us in the office of deacon. This morning, Jesus reigns at the right hand. His time of suffering service is over. And he will return in glory. And that narrative is the narrative of all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, I pray that any today who are hearing the work of Christ without having received it through faith would find rest for their souls by realizing that there is an ultimate servant who humbled himself in ways that are actually beyond our imagination or ability to fathom. The eternally perfect Son of God left everything so that he could be born in a human form 
in a manger. And really he took on humanity so that he could die, so that he could suffer the pain of the cross. And yet, Lord, that suffering was willing, and it was according to your revealed will. As Jesus told Peter, put away the sword because I go to the cross so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Thank you for Christ's commitment to fidelity to the word, even to death. Lord, I thank you truly that you've blessed us with many really good deacons. Thank you for the 12 we have now. Thank you for your mercy in that. Continue to bless their families. Lord, may they generationally be able to tell stories. May their grandchildren tell stories about how the faith that is in Christ Jesus was seen in their granddad and then carried on through their family. Lord, we thank you also for the fact that the confidence that we have is in Christ Jesus, not our service even. Because the truth is, none of us are great people. We just have a great Savior. And so these qualities listed of elders and deacons may be generally characteristic, but they are never perfectly true of us. In fact, they are painful for me to read because they remind me how short I fall of the glory of God. And so I'm so grateful that God came down to the inglorious so that he could take our shame and give us his glory. Lord, I pray this passage would guide us in the years and months ahead. Help your church to be active in its recognition and affirmation of its leaders. I pray that our harmony would be totally contrary to the disunity and disharmony we see in the world all the way around us. And Lord, we pray that our service would be sacrificial and self-effacing. And may those all be things that display the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.